Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 123, Alliances, Confederations, and Empires. Now, first, we've got basically a month's worth of Patreon folks to thank. So first, a th- big thanks to an increased pledge from Mircho Valchev. And then thank you to Robert White, Tamarin Jones-Francis, Alexander Zanov, Matt Lawler, Anton Petrov, and Michael Morris. All that together means, I believe right now we are at 99 Patreon patrons. So if you've been thinking about uh, maybe supporting the podcast, you could be patron number 100. Now, I also want to mention there is now a subreddit for this uh, podcast that a a listener actually created. I'm not really on Reddit. I don't tend to use Reddit much, but maybe I'll have to actually create an account to to participate in everything. But it's r slash Bulgarian History Pod. I'll try to post it uh, in the episode description and on the Facebook page and stuff so you can find that. But if you want to go talk about this podcast or or post some questions or something instead of asking me directly, which you can also do, that is a great place to do it. All right, now let's get into things. So last time, we talked about Midhat Pasha's attempts at at, not reenacting, but enacting reforms and oppression in equal measure within the Danube Vilayet, while a flood of refugees from the final Russian conquest of the Caucasus fueled instability. Romania saw Prince Kuza enact a coup and push through agrarian reforms, which backfired stupendously. Serbia pushed out the Bulgarian legion, moving the center of Bulgarian revolutionary activities back to Bucharest, and a new secret Bulgarian committee was also founded there. Lastly, the patriarch continued to twiddle its thumbs on the Bulgarian church question, ostensibly gathering an assembly to decide what to do, but functionally doing nothing time and time again. And all of this brings us to the summer of 1865. On the 15th of August, the Varna municipality called a bishop's assembly and developed something like an emergency code according to which the leadership of the church and school affairs in their eparchy, an eparchy is kind of like a bishopric, will be taken over by the municipality. So, interestingly enough, it seems that Bulgarian church officials were now, were now kind of finding new and novel ways to challenge the authority of the patriarchate, at times by literally taking authority away from the church structure and giving it over to municipal structures. So kind of an interesting way to combat the patriarchate. In the following months, the Russian ambassador Ignatiev pressured the patriarchate to begin negotiations with Bulgarian advocates of church independence. We already know that Russia had been pushing hard to resolve this issue in some way, which allowed them to maintain or even expand their influence through orthodoxy. The Ottomans were really in the same position and soon called Bulgarian representatives to Constantinople to attempt to convince them to continue negotiating with the Patriarchate despite, well, the lack of any progress up to this point. So the Ottomans and the Russians are both pushing very hard for a resolution to this, but not much is coming of it at this point. Now, Yelovich explained how the Greek church now really relied on Bulgarian lands for much of its revenue, and this was really making things complicated for them. It's important to remember that the reason why the the patriarchate is so against reform, you know, there's a lot of them. There's the innate conservatism. There's the kind of, you could say there's some anti-Slav 
Greek nationalism involved, perhaps. Uh, and there's this just straight up revenue question. But to make things further complicated, Serbia was actually getting a bit involved in making its own demands for kind of church autonomy and uh, and having certain church lands come under a Serbian church. And this is overlapping with what the Bulgarians and Greeks were fighting for. So yeah, we're getting a nice bit of foreshadowing for later political events. But just know that in essence, the, the church question is just sort of getting more intractable and complicated by the day. Now, the Ottoman government... I'll note here, we haven't really discussed this directly, but it's more the Ottoman government now than the Sultan, as the Ottoman government is becoming you know, larger, more bureaucratic, than really acting more independent of the Sultan than ever before. And this is why the Sultans don't get mentioned very much anymore. Anyway, so the Ottoman government was, as we know, quite desperate to maintain peaceful relations between Bulgarians and Greeks, thus the push to resolve the church question. Having these more peaceful relations would, of course, mean for them a more stable empire, one that's more easy to control, tax, etc. But an entire generation of young Bulgarians is being formed, which is determined to challenge the status quo and to challenge the Ottomans. So their job is getting harder. But the next year, Bulgarian church leaders actually took some pretty radical action and expelled Greek bishops from Bulgarian lands, effectively ending the legal authority of the patriarchate there at all. And so this is, I, I would say, probably the most radical action we've seen in this whole fight so far, right? We've, we've had Bulgarian church officials not mention the name of the patriarch in Easter services and things like that, and, and to sort of denounce them and to, you know, call for corrupt church officials to be run out of town and such. We've seen a lot of events like this, but at this point, we've seen Bulgarian church officials, you know, give authority over to the municipality and straight up just expel Greek church officials whatsoever. Now, outside of the church question, in these months, uh, Georgi Rakovci was meeting with Romanian government officials in Bucharest. Vasilevsky left his teaching job to travel to Romania, and a young Christel Botev began working as a teacher in a village in Bessarabia. All people who are intimately connected with this newly kind of rising up generation of Bulgarian revolutionaries, though Rakovsky was always, obviously a bit of the older generation. Now, each of these three men was at a different stage in their political awakening, but all of them were being shaped into men who were shaking things up. Now, publications were still critical to this mission, and Rakovsky soon began printing a magazine whose title could be translated as something like Bulgarian Oldness uh, in Bucharest. And this magazine was conceived as a way to popularize Bulgarian history, so I'm a fan, but financial difficulties prevented any further publications. But it, it's an interesting thing to point out because it, it points to how people like Rakovsky increasingly saw the importance of history as well as periodicals as kind of tools for national identity building. Financial difficulties aside, Bulgarian reading rooms were also still spreading. Another one opened in 1866 in Constantinople near the Balkan Panhan, which we talked about before, kind of center of the Bulgarian community there. And this new reading room quickly became a kind of rival cultural and meeting center for the Bulgarian community with its own printing press and a cafe where, quote, the Bulgarian elite smoke and drank bitter coffee discussing the daily news, end quote. Now, we do know that acting against the Ottomans or the Patriarchate alone remained a very difficult task. These were still formidable institutions, but the great powers were taking more of an interest in Bulgaria. 
As we know from my last episode covering uh, the book on traveling in 19th century Bulgaria, more and more foreigners were coming to Bulgarian lands and foreign governments were becoming more interested in gaining more knowledge about what Bulgaria was and who lived there and such. But yeah, government interest was picking up and a British company, as we know, was already building the Ruse to Varna railway line. Uh, and in the fall of 1865, the British government tasked two consuls with traveling through Bulgaria to familiarize themselves with the population and their condition. So this is an interesting kind of next step. I mean, we know that foreign governments has o- have opened consulates in many Bulgarian towns, particularly Plovdiv. But you know, going from having a consul there to actually tasking them with really traveling around the country and familiarizing themselves, I, I think that shows an additional level of interest and is obviously a, a positive development for the Bulgarian people who are hoping to be known and, and hopefully sympathized with in their national ideals. Now, that the condition that those consuls found Bulgaria in was also changing. During 1865, a the factory of a man named Dobri Yelaskov in Sleven expanded with the help of government subsidies. So the Ottoman government was subsidizing these things and brought in new weaving machines, about a hundred new weaving machines. And so this, this kind of textile factory now employed 330 workers. And the next year, a distillery was built in Turnovo and a match factory in Viden. And so while manufacturing in Bulgaria is still at a very kind of low level, it is growing. And factories are coming with, partially with government help, sometimes without government help, but some very early level industrial development is coming, although it's worth noting that for now and for many decades afterwards, Bulgaria is still overwhelmingly agrarian. But progress is being made, and it does show that the Ottoman government can at time be a helpful tool in you know, the economic progress of Bulgarian lands. Elsewhere in 1865, Bulgarian culture was also expanding. A man named Dobri Voynikov founded the Bulgarian Theatrical Society in Braila, where they put on their first play the early the next year, and generally around the region, about 51 Bulgarian books and seven periodicals were published. But while that trickle of internal developments were kind of gradually transforming Bulgaria, much bigger outside events were reshaping Europe as a, as a whole far faster. In the spring of 1866, Such events were brewing to the north, where the long-standing rivalry between Austria and Prussia was heating up. Now, they've been competing for influence in the German Confederation since it was founded as a kind of defensive pact following the Napoleonic Wars. Two years earlier, Austria and Prussia had jointly conquered Schleswig-Holstein, roughly kind of the area between Hamburg and the current Danish border, so the very, very northern tippy-top of Germany, And if you're interested, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm curious to see it. There is a Danish TV show that came out recently about this war, which is called 1864. So maybe check that out. It it looked pretty interesting. Anyway, so Austria and Prussia conquered this territory from Denmark and now jointly occupied it. But in the early weeks of 1866, Austria decided to allow the territory to call an assembly. Prussia protested and Austria said, well, we have every right to do this and both sides started to prepare for war. Now, there were other reasons for the break, this kind of rift between the two allies, but the ambitions of Prussia and its chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, were definitely paramount among them. Prussia had been moving towards unifying Germany for years, and despite their alliance with Austria, the Austrians were very deeply concerned about this. There was some talk in Vienna that Austria could perhaps preempt 
Prussia and attempt to unify Germany under its guidance, but that really went nowhere. Bismarck knew that this was his chance. He had a casus belli, and he had just signed an alliance with Italy, which basically gave the Prussians a three-month window in which if they went to war with uh, Austria, Italy would come join the war as well. And Italy wanted Venice, which Austria still controlled. Remember, Italy recently unified, and Venice is the most important bit of Italian territory outside of Italy, so they have every reason to want to go to war with them as well. In addition, Russia was still very grateful for Prussian assistance in putting down the uprisings in 1848. France and England were neutral, and their neutrality had been more or less guaranteed by Bismarck. So Bismarck, this was kind of his thing, right? The big geopolitics and everything. He had set up the perfect moment, the perfect situation. He had a reason to go to war against the Austrians. He had full free reign to do it. He knew that Russia, the Ottomans, the British, and the French were not going to intervene and that the Italians would be on his side. So this is his moment to get rid of the only potential rival for Prussia in kind of unifying and dominating the German states. Now, some German states would stand against the Prussians and Bismarck, but the first moves in this war, besides mobilization and diplomatic ones, were actually among those German states. Prussia attempted to kick Austria out of the German Confederation, while Austria attempted to mobilize the German states to act against Prussia. But Bismarck took all this as a declaration of war, and Prussia quickly invaded Hanover, Saxony, and Hessen. They blockaded Bavaria as Italy itself entered the war. Still, most of the German states sided with Prussia, but again, a few of them, particularly Bavaria being the largest, did side with Austria. And so we basically have a giant German war with the Italians getting involved. Now, the war which resulted was yet another example of how technology was revolutionizing war. We talked about this a little bit during the Napoleonic Wars and with the Crimean War. And again, like the Crimean War, railroads and telegraphs played a very important role, but new rifle technology was just as important as the Prussians could reload their rifles from the back instead of having to push bullets in from the front end. Now, having learned to do this myself as a US Civil War kind of reenactor in my high school and early college years, let me assure you, loading a gun from the back instead of from the front is much easier and much faster. And in particular, it meant you could be laying down or kind of squatting or crouched and you could still reload your weapon. And so this fairly simple technological shift gave the Prussians a major advantage. And so to make a long story short, seven weeks short, as a, that's how the, long the war really lasted, the Prussians heavily defeated uh, the Austrians at the Battle of Königgratz. And although Austria did pretty well against the Italians on that front, well, and even most of the German states actually held their own against Prussia, that single major Austrian defeat really sealed the fate of the war. So seven weeks in, leading to one of the names of the war, the Seven Weeks War, it was over. France was called in to help mediate a peace treaty. Venice was ceded to Italy via France. I don't know, I didn't really care to go into why, but uh, Schleswig-Holstein, if I can pronounce that right, my German's not great, and Hanover and several more territories were annexed by Prussia. The German Confederation was dissolved and replaced by the North German Confederation, dominated by Prussia. I'll include a map for the blog post on this episode. Austria no longer had any formal role within Germany. This meant it no longer had the option to further its influence to the north, and so it had to turn south. 
the Habsburg-led Austrian Empire, as we know, had really not been involved in the Balkans more or less since the Treaty of Svistov in 1791. And we know that that meant the people of the Balkans had shifted their attention to Russia as opposed to Austria as the great power most likely to liberate them from Ottoman rule. But now, pressed out of Italy, unable to expand north, and not interested in fighting Russia to the east, the only direction Austria could focus on was south towards the Ottomans and the Balkans, as well as Serbia and Greece, of course, and Romania. Now, obviously, this is a potential game changer for Bulgaria, Serbia, Romania, Greece, all the Balkan states, but Austria's influence was not quite like Russia's. Russia sought to expand its influence in this region partly through territorial annexations, but also through the cultivation of strong allied states like Serbia and potentially Bulgaria. Austria, on the other hand, was not interested in strong and independent Balkan states. For one, as we just said, it now had ambitions to expand south, and so stronger and new Balkan states was not going to make that expansion easier. But Austria also had a substantial Slavic population of its own, and it definitely did not want those people to, well, gain any ideas about getting their own independence. But Austria also greatly feared a strong Russia, and so it didn't want Russia to succeed in the Balkans. But again, Austria was not really in a position to do very much about it at this point. So, while Bulgarian revolutionaries might now have Austria's attention, they're not likely to have Austrian support anytime soon. So basically, Austria kind of just really wants the status quo and like it, it sort of wants to expand south in the Balkans now, but it also is concerned about, you know, well, as we'll talk about later, getting too many Slavs, then it, it, it's very complicated. But Austria is now interested in the Balkans, but kind of just in favor of the status quo. Now, historian RJ Crampton notes how the Austro-Prussian War created instability, which could spread from the Balkans and Mikhail Obrenovich was working on a Serbian-Montenegrin-Romanian alliance which could attack the Ottomans if the opportunity arose. I mentioned previously that he was trying to build the Serbian military, and this was all a part of that mission. Now, coming out of this period and coming out of those ambitions, the Serbs formed the First Balkan Alliance. And it's going to gradually come, over, come together over the next two years, spearheaded by Serbia, but also backed by France and Russia. France had extensive commercial ties in the Ottoman Empire, as we know, but it had often been an Ottoman ally in the past, but now the two states said, well, they'd fought one another uh, in the Napoleonic Wars, they'd fought alongside each other in the Crimean War, France had supported Greek insurgents, and now Napoleon III generally saw supporting Balkan independence movements, especially Serbia and Romania, as a key part of its foreign policy. This is another kind of point of contention between France and Austria. France wants strong, independent Balkan states. But, you know, if you know anything about Napoleon III, you do know that in general, Austria or France's foreign policy in the Balkans is a bit all over the place. It's not very consistent or well thought out. Now, over the next two years, the Balkan alliance expanded to include Montenegro, a Croatian political party within the Austrian Empire, the secret Bulgarian committee, which had just been founded by Rakovci in Bucharest, the Greek state and the Romanian state. Essentially, every major Balkan national group, except for the Turks and Albanians, were involved. Though there was some collaboration with, the, with certain anti-Ottoman Albanians, uh, particularly Catholic ones, but Serb officials were a bit hesitant about this collaboration because of competing national goals. But I will say, the Bulgarian participation is more complex than it might seem. 
Although the Bulgarian committee had signed up to support the alliance and interestingly actually proposed a joint Serbo-Bulgarian-Yugoslav state as a part of this support, most Bulgarian organizations did oppose the alliance and viewed it as a simple tool of Serbian nationalism and expansion, which, to be fair, I think it kind of was. Uh, backers like France explicitly desired and advocated for the creation of a greater Balkan state, which would be largely under Serbian hegemony. So, fair point. And as we know, as we've seen for quite a while, right, Serbia is uh, not the most reliable ally of the Bulgarian revolutionaries. Sometimes it backs them very heavily, but it can very quickly change its position when it's necessary. Now, the agreement with the Croatians was very, we can say more explicitly aimed at creating a greater Serb-led South Slav state by capturing Bosnia and kind of working with the Croatians in that goal. But an event which occurred in 1866, just as Serbia's alliance building was getting underway, had a major effect on it. In August of 1866, a revolt was proclaimed in Crete in response to the people there feeling that the Ottomans were not taking their concerns seriously and a general desire for independence. You'll remember that Crete has already seen two failed uprisings against the Ottomans. The rebels quickly gained control of the countryside, but as with previous revolts, the Ottomans held firm in the fortified towns. Soon, 16,000 Egyptian troops under the command of Muhammad Ali's grandson, another callback, arrived. On the other side, volunteers from Greece, Hungary, Italy, and Serbia also arrived to help the Cretans. The fighting raged into the next year with bloody massacres occurring before the Cretans were defeated after about two and a half years of the uprising. Ultimately, despite the arrival of volunteers, no major power wanted to intervene. The closest was ironically the United States, which had just finished up its civil war and saw an opportunity to acquire a Mediterranean port as a part of their support, but the US Congress eventually decided not to intervene in Ottoman affairs. The fighting led to a dramatic worsening of Greek-Ottoman relations and a somewhat, let's say, more shaky uh, result in Greek-Russian relations. Russia wasn't that happy with this. They, they didn't really want this to be happening, and Greece supporting it upset Russia somewhat. The result was that both powers turned more towards Bulgaria, that is, the Russians and the Ottomans, uh, and were more willing than ever to make concessions to prevent the spread of unionism and sort of ideas and, and movements that would challenge their authority. So in other words, the Ottomans and the Russians both saw this Cretan revolt as an example of how kind of Balkan national movements could rise up and really challenge them and, and act in such a way that they can't control it. And so they wanted to focus more on Bulgaria in order to make sure that they were kind of more in control of how the Balkans was shaping up. Thus, the Cretan revolt had some unlikely effects. But it does seem that the fighting there helped convince Prince Michael of Serbia that this was ironically not the right time to start a war with the Ottomans. Now, at face value, it seemed like this is a great time, like the Ottomans are distracted, why not fight them now? Uh, but for some reason, he drew the opposite conclusion. Now, Greece was also facing its own troubles. Although its Prince George did marry the niece of Tsar Alexander II of Russia at the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg in October 1867, which no doubt helped mend some of those uh, difficult and strained relations uh, of, for, resulting from the Cretan Revolt. But Greece, despite its support of the Cretan rebels and everything, was going through a lot. It had a liberal constitution, which was very democratic, but in its case, it produced profound instability because every time a government changed, which was very often, 
every single office from the very highest to the very lowest was replaced with a new person, creating a lot of instability, incentives for corruption, fraud, and even violence. So although Greece was obtaining powerful allies, you know, joining the Balkan alliance, maybe starting to mend its relationship with Russia, starting to help the Cretans and everything against the Ottomans, it might seem like, like Greece might be emboldened, but it was very weak internally. Now, around the same time the Cretan revolt was getting underway, Sultan Abdulaziz also decided it was time to update the Ottoman navy with modern ironclad warships. So he began buying them from Britain, and over the next decade, he's going to buy about 20, very much further adding to the empire's financial woes, which we haven't touched on in a little while, but just so we're all on the same page, the Ottoman Empire is taking on a tremendous amount of debt from France and the UK. But even as the Balkan alliance is being formed and the Cretan revolt is raging, the geopolitical situation was still shifting further back in Austria following its loss to Prussia. Now, you'll remember that during the revolutions of 1848, the Hungarians rose up and were crushed by with Russian assistance. And since then, Hungary was placed under direct imperial control and its former representative rights were abolished. The German language was made official for nearly all aspects of life, and generally, Hungarian nationalism was strongly repressed. However, in the aftermath of the Austrian defeat, the state simply didn't have the political power to maintain this repression. So, in a bid to basically save the Austrian Empire from collapse, the Habsburgs turned to the Hungarians and proposed a plan to bring them into the leadership of the empire. As a part of this agreement, Hungary was restored along with its parliament and prime minister, although less than 8% of the population would be allowed to vote. It would also be bound to the Austrian portion of the empire by a joint emperor, joint administration of defense, finances, and foreign affairs. So, in other words, everything except for defense, finances, and foreign affairs would be managed separately, Austria and Hungary. Even they, they had separate passports, you know, separate countries joined with just these few uh, supranational elements. So, Finally, from here on out, we'll be talking about the Austro-Hungarian Empire instead of the Austrian Empire. Now for Bulgaria, this made the new Austro-Hungarian state even more hesitant to annex more Slavic territories in the Balkans because the Hungarians already only made up about half the population of the Hungarian portion of the empire. So the idea of bringing even more non-Hungarians, namely Slavs, into the empire was not something the Hungarians were enthusiastic about. They were already barely you know, going to be able to maintain kind of majoritarian control over their very large territory, and they wanted to keep it that way. So again, Austria-Hungary is now looking south for greater influence, but that influence is not going to go so far as to advocate outright annexation. And all this brings us back to Serbia and the Balkan alliance. Misha Glenny points out how the Austro-Prussian War and the establishment of the dual monarchy in Austria-Hungary had profound effects on the Serbians, as, quote, the Hungarians no longer felt the need to cooperate with the Croats or Serbs. They could now risk a little confrontation, and Serbia came under considerable pressure from the north, end quote. So again, the, the Hungarians now are kind of, they're both much more emboldened, but also, you know, hesitant in other ways. Now, by 1868, Serbia and its alliance were looking quite strong, but again, still not quite strong enough to go to war with the Ottomans. Prince Michael of Serbia considered launching a war in March of 1868, but the condition of his soldiers persuaded him it wasn't wise. 
Glennie explains that Michael envisioned a mass army built upon the peasantry and not simply stemming from the Serbian elite. However, numbers alone were not enough. Now, to be fair, the Serbian army did have the numbers. 90,000 men-at-arms in 1863, about 8% of its entire population. But it lacked, quote, discipline, clothing, medical support, proper logistics, and above all, an abundant supply of weapons and well-trained officers, end quote. When Prince Michael invited foreign military experts to evaluate the Serbian army, let's say their reports were far from positive. And in any case, just a few months later, everything came to a crashing halt. On June the 10th of that year, Prince Michael of Serbia was assassinated in a park outside of Belgrade. Many suspected the Karadjordjevic family was behind the plot, but even to this day, we don't know for certain. Now, because the Balkan alliance had largely been his personal project, it quickly fell apart without his leadership, with only Montenegro really expressing continued interest. Michael was succeeded by his 13-year-old grandnephew, Milan, because he had no kids of his own. So while the Serbian crown remained in the Obrenovic family, Serbia now had a tween at the helm, and so its force, his forceful foreign policy and militarization was not going to be able to continue at the same pace, and for now it would be governed by a regency council. Now, fun side note, young Milan's father Milos had died fighting the Turks in Wallachia, and his mother had gone from being the mistress of Prince Kuza of Romania to, well, being with his father. His background is very interesting and messy, but that's a whole story for another day. And really, that is where we're going to finish off for today. The Austro-Prussian War has birthed the North German Confederation, in effect laying the groundwork for a unified Germany under Prussian dominance. Austria has been shut out of influence in Germany and is now weaker than ever and looking to exert influence in the Balkans by suppressing those new states and revolutionary movements. And this weakness also led to the formation of the Austro-Hungarian Empire as the Austrians realized that they were going to have to bring in the Hungarians to keep their state alive. Serbia, meanwhile, led the creation of the First Balkan Alliance, largely aimed at the Ottomans, but Serbian military weakness, the distraction of the Cretan Revolt, and the untimely assassination of Prince Michael meant that the alliance ultimately fizzled out before it could really accomplish anything. All the while, industry was growing in Bulgaria, and its church leaders were continuing to fight the patriarch despite attempts to calm their anger. Next time, we'll see the Bulgarian revolutionary movement enter a new and much more active phase, and the church issue will also enter its own final stages. Events are building towards a more serious Bulgarian action against the Ottomans, but when or where that will come remains to be seen. So, don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And as I mentioned, check out uh, the subreddit as well. And well, I'll catch you in the next one.